Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls. This morning, I am recording my conversation with Talmadge Boston, author of Cross-Examining History, A Lawyer Gets Answers from the Experts About Our Presidents. Talmadge, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. I'm excited to be on your show. Now, you and I are having this conversation on November 9th, the day after an election that did not go quite how many people anticipated it going. In doing your presidential research, have you ever come across an election like this, similar to this, that we can look back on and and think about in historical terms? Well, I think the one that comes to mind the quickest is uh, the 1948 election, when absolutely every single pundit and so-called expert predicted that Thomas Dewey would beat Harry Truman. And it went so far that the uh, major Chicago newspaper printed the headline, Dewey Defeats Truman. And then by the end of the uh, the vote counting, Truman had swept the West, and he beat Dewey, and that was against everyone's expectations. And so that's the one that comes to mind as being closest in time. I noticed yesterday the Washington Post asked every single one of their top pundits to predict the outcome. And every single one of them predicted that that Hillary Clinton was going to win. And uh, so uh, I don't think there were very many at all nationwide who were predicting that Donald Trump would get the support he had. And so I think the bottom line on this is you truly cannot trust the polls. And all of the, the people in the media who had weighed in as it being a certainty that Hillary Clinton was going to win obviously looked pretty foolish. Let's back up a little bit and talk about this project. Now, you're not officially, your full-time job is not officially as an historian. Can you talk a little bit about your practice and what led you to compile this really quite remarkable project? Yes, I'm a 38-year practitioner here in downtown Dallas, Texas, and I've been a shareholder uh, at the Winstead Law Firm in the Dallas office uh, for the last 19 and a half years. And so I am a full-time lawyer and have been throughout my career. This is my fourth book. The first two were about baseball history, and the third one was uh, a legal inspirational book called Raising the Bar that was published by the State Bar of Texas. So this is my first book about the subject of presidential history. And I have had a lifelong fascination with the presidency ever since I was seven years old and in recent years have become increasingly fascinated with it, given that so many of our top historians and nonfiction writers are devoting themselves to uh, writing presidential biographies or, or studying the presidencies of different leaders over the years. So this is a an area that uh, has justifiably been receiving a whole lot of attention over the last quarter century, and I think that's only growing. And so uh, as a member of the board of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, beginning in 2010, I was asked to interview best-selling historians and public figures as they would come through town. And that started, my first one was with uh, Michael Lewis, his book, The Big Short. But I got into the presidential historian interviews with Ken Burns, talking about the Roosevelts, John Meacham, his Thomas Jefferson biography, uh, interviewing Henry Kissinger uh, on stage, interviewing Pulitzer Prize winner Scott Berg about his Woodrow Wilson biography. So as of early 2015, I'd done eight interviews which had been recorded and transcribed of uh, different uh, either presidential biographers or White House insiders. 
And my publisher in Houston, Bright Sky Press, who had published both my baseball books, said, you know, I think this is book-worthy. So I made the commitment to myself and, and made to some friends that I'm going to make a book out of this. And between February and December 2015, I conducted 23 interviews all over the country. Of, and I found a major presidential biographer of, of every significant American president, as well as interviewing those White House insiders who I had access to. So the book is made up of 31 edited transcripts of these interviews. Every one of them was done in front of a live audience. And the beautiful thing was the chance to get to use my interrogation and cross-examination skills of almost 40 years as a practicing commercial litigator, you know, outside the legal arena and to use it, you know, for the public good and in this case for history's good to really get our arms around our top presidents as our top historical minds view the most important areas of their lives and presidency as of year in 2016. So I have two questions for you about um, your choices with the book. And I'll start with the first, which is, how did you determine which presidents you would focus on? Because with Trump's election, we're looking at president number 45, but uh, you did not attempt all 45 presidents. Could you please talk a little bit about how a president would make the cut for you to talk to an historian and devote a chapter to them? My thought was that I did not want to have a biographer of every president because that would make the book two and a half times longer than it is, and it's already 500 pages. And I also decided that people in 2016 and 2017 are not uh, wildly excited about learning a whole lot more about Millard Fillmore and some of our more irrelevant presidents. So I did not choose our 21, quote, best presidents, because obviously that's too subjective. But I chose who I believe are our 21 most significant presidents. And I think there's largely a historical consensus of agreement on that. For example, Herbert Hoover is by no means a great president, but he was the president when the Great Depression hit. And so he's one of the people who I selected and, and got a, a prominent historian, David Davenport, from the Hoover Institute at Stanford to interview for the book. So my uh, basis for choosing what wasn't highly individualistic, because I think there is a great agreement among who our most significant presidents are, and for our most importance, for example, Abraham Lincoln, I did two chapters, one with Harold Holzer, another with Ron White, two of our very top Lincoln scholars. For Franklin Roosevelt, I actually did three with Ken Burns and with uh, Jeffrey Ward, who's the Pulitzer finalist for his biography of Roosevelt, and James Tobin, the National Book Critics Award winner for his book, The Man He Became, about how FDR defied polio. So for some of the presidents, I actually did two interviews. For Nixon, for example, who's obviously not one of our best, but certainly one of our more intriguing, one of our more important, given all the good things and all the bad things that happened during his presidency. I got Doug Brinkley, who's the editor of the Nixon Tapes, as well as New York Times bestselling historian Evan Thomas with his book that came out in 2015, Being Nixon. So I, I covered the waterfront of our most significant presidents and I have not gotten any real critical response about my choice. Okay. Um, I might stick up for Chester Allen Arthur because of his civil service reform. But aside from that, one thing that I found very interesting, and this is the second question I had for you about how you chose your subjects, was you decided that at this point in history, not enough time had passed to really have a more objective look at 
George W. Bush or President Barack Obama. What made you decide that? Do you think that there will be major differences between how we today view George W. Bush or President Obama? Yes, Harry Truman once said that it takes 50 years for the dust to settle. And I think that's probably accurate. Uh, although I don't know that we need to wait 50 years. I think the presidency of Reagan is coming into clear scope, as is the presidency of Bush 41 and increasingly Clinton. But Bush 43 and Obama, it, it's just too close in time. And everyone seems to recognize that who's in the history business. In terms of how do I think history is going to treat our two most recent presidents, I think that Bush 43 is, is going to get upgraded over time. Uh, I think the assessment of the circumstances regarding why he decided we needed to pursue the Iraq war, given the belief in uh, what he believed was the best information available and in which the Democrats believed was the best information available as evidenced by both Hillary Clinton and John Kerry supporting his decision to go into Iraq and, the, of course, the U.N.'s support of his decision to go into Iraq in the aftermath of 9-11, when everyone was feeling so justifiably insecure about what the next terrorist act might be, I think that uh, that's going to be uh, reconsidered before people demonize him over having made what they perceive to be such a bad decision based on 2020 hindsight after the weapons of mass destruction that everybody thought existed turned out were not there. So I think history is going to recognize the response by President Bush to 9-11 and his commitment to make the world a safer place after that, that that will be viewed favorably. President Obama obviously is going to get high marks as our first African-American president, as being a very eloquent speaker, as being someone whose presidency was not marred by scandal. Uh, although his domestic achievements uh, are not much, obviously Obamacare has not worked out the way he had hoped. And, of course, he misrepresented Obamacare when he said, if you like your insurance, you'll get to keep your insurance. If you like your doctor, you'll get to keep your doctor. And everybody assumed that what he was saying was true when, in fact, it was false. So I think Obamacare is going to go down as a disaster, and I think his foreign policy pulling back and relying on the rest of the world to deal with the forces of terror and, and the Russians is going to be considered a deeply flawed policy that made the world, uh, and particularly uh, life for Americans, a much more dangerous place. So you put all, all that together, I would expect Obama to end up in the top half, but uh, certainly in not top 15. He might be in the top 20 or so. And I would think that Bush 43 in time would, would at least get into the middle of the pack as opposed to the bottom where so many people now rate him. Let's talk about something that just kept being brought up again and again this election season. And, you know, honestly, I'm 36 years old. And to me, it seems like it's been brought up in my memory, at least back to the Bill Clinton years, which is how divided the electorate seems to us. When you look back over the presidential administrations, which you did, I know today we have this idea that, oh, we're more divided today than we've ever been. In your opinion, do you think that's true? Is that borne out by historical facts that we're more divided than in the past? Or is this just a matter of perspective? 
I think when you're living in the moment, you always think things are a whole lot more dramatic than they actually are compared to the way things have been over the long haul of history. Nobody, no country could have been more divided than we were during the John Adams presidency when the Federalist controlled Congress passed the Sedition Act in 1798, which provided that anybody who criticized President Adams would be thrown in prison, and many were thrown in prison. So obviously, we are not at that point now. Obviously, the country was deeply divided when Abraham Lincoln was elected president, so divided that as soon as he was elected, states immediately began seceding from the Union. Of course, we had the Civil War. I think what we can say about today, given the 24-7, 365 news media coverage, is that we are more barraged with information from pundits and from both sides than we've ever been before, and it is consuming people's mindsets unlike any time in our history. I mean, in prior decades and centuries, it was largely about newspapers, and there were not competing television networks that were going all the time with people who are paid to each day say something stronger and stronger and stronger uh, in their opinions in hopes of attracting a bigger audience and therefore more advertising revenue. So I think that part of what's going on today is unique, and I think it is definitely causing people to have much stronger opinions to the extent that we see so many heated arguments and screaming matches that we've seen on television in the last few weeks and months whenever people who uh, are on different sides confront each other and are aghast at each other that somebody could think differently, and and they're equally aghast. So I I think our, our national level of agitation is probably ramped up and higher than it's ever been. But in terms of, quote, sheer polarization, you could not get any more polarized than during the presidency of John Adams or immediately before and after the election of Abraham Lincoln. And Talmadge, I really did enjoy, and I hope our readers, if they pick up your book, Cross-Examining History, also enjoy the discussion surrounding the Sedition Act, which isn't something that I heard all that much about in school. It was sort of skated over as this unfortunate thing that isn't around anymore. Could you talk a little bit about what you learned from historians about the Sedition Act and its effect on America? Well, the Sedition Act was passed in 1798, and it, as I mentioned a minute ago, uh, was what Congress passed, controlled by Federalist Party in Congress, that provided that anybody who publicly criticized President Adams would be thrown in prison. And, in fact, it is the ultimate tarnish on John Adams' presidency. I say it's the, it is to John Adams the level of tarnish that Watergate is to Nixon. David McCulloch, whose book on John Adams won the Pulitzer Prize, and everybody saw the made-for-TV movie and is very familiar with, I don't think brings out all the full heat toward Adams' approval of the Sedition Act that Charles Slack in his book did, who's uh, someone who I interviewed for the book, as well as David. Because it's obviously very unpleasant to think that somebody who's one of our top founding fathers and most revered uh, historical figures could have at least passively endorsed. Uh, He was not outspoken in favor of it, but he certainly stood by and allowed all these people to be thrown in jail who criticized him. And uh, that response was amazing, given that he had been such an outspoken supporter of freedom of speech and freedom of the press. 
up through the writing and, and ratification of the Constitution. So it really is a black eye on Adams' presidency, but I do think it's an important part of the American story as people today who think that there's never been polarization like there is today once they learn about what life was like between 1798 and early 1801, they realize that this is part of the American story, and the great leaders are those like Thomas Jefferson who recognize this major polarization and take uh, active steps to, to try to bring the warring parties together and build relationships with those across the aisle, and that's what great presidents do and what poor presidents do not do. So something that I actually found kind of comforting about the Sedition Act is that reading the principles it laid out, which was that no government uh, employee could be criticized, the president could not be criticized, but the vice president could. And the vice president, who was Thomas Jefferson, was very disliked by the legislature. And to me, it seems like real pettiness, and yet we got through it as a country. What would your response to that be? When we talk about the Sedition Act, and, and if we just look at it as if it was just another presidency, then the reaction would be, yes, how is this possible? This was petty. We've got the Bill of Rights. People should never have thought or acted this way. But the reality was that our country was brand new. Our country was very fragile. And there was a deep fear that what had been won through the very challenging American Revolution and, of course, having a new constitution with, with Bill of Rights was very precious. And what inspired John Adams and the Federalists to support the Sedition Act was that if we had this rampant outpouring of criticism, that it could well cause another revolution, an overthrow of what had been fought so hard for. So this is like all history. You've got to put it into perspective in the time in which these things were done. And so if this had been happening when the country was 150 years old, that would be one thing. But when the country was about 10 years old, then that's something totally different. And there was a real recognition of how fragile things were and a real desire to make sure that what we had would be preserved. And the country was very fragile really up through at least the presidency of, of Andrew Jackson and, and, and people who had lived through the revolution and, and, and then, of course, through the, the War of 1812, which wasn't that much farther after that, realized that if we were going to stay independent and united, there was always going to be lots of challenges. And we had to do what it took to try to keep what we had and, and make it better. So that's why, uh, on the one hand, it is so troubling to think about this Sedition Act and the way it was enforced. But on the other hand, it's, it's understandable when we put it in, in the context of the exact time uh, when it was acted and enforced. Well, and I appreciate you saying that because I was indeed, as a modern reader, applying my understanding of a country back to that and thinking, oh, how absurd, how could that possibly have been justified without taking into account the historical times it was taking place in. Yes, one of the most important conclusions to be derived from the points made by the historians in my book is that we always need to evaluate our presidents based upon their time and place and the decisions being made in that context. And for example, in the last four or five years, 
there has been a demonization of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and Andrew Jackson on the grounds that they were slave owners. Yes, they were slave owners. They had large farms, plantations in the South, and in their eras in the 1700s and the the first part of the 1800s, there was no equipment or machinery to allow a farmer to plow his uh, crops uh, efficiently. There was no uh, large labor force of people waiting in line to be paid wages to work the fields for whoever the farm owner was. And so these presidents who had the large farms in the South, if they wanted to make a living off them, had to come up with a way for somebody to do the farming. It was it was far too much for simply one person. So because since from the time of the Constitution until the Civil War, slavery was legal at the time, they made the decision to have slaves and use them to work their farms. And of course, today, it sounds horrible. And from a moral standpoint, it was and it is horrible. But uh, I was talking on a PBS radio show here kind of explaining it wasn't because these people were demonic that they owned slaves. It was because there was no other way in the 1700s and the early 1800s to make a, a large farm work and be able potentially being productive to the owner. And I was making this point and just explaining why people made those decisions. And somebody called in and and acted like I was endorsing slavery in 2016. And of course, uh, I'm as offended by the idea of slavery as anybody else. But if you're going to try to understand these people and, and why they did what they did, you've you got to understand what the economy was like, what the all-around pertinent facts were that led to the situation that now in 2016 offends us, such that seven different states in the last couple of years have taken off the name Jefferson Jackson, seven different the Democratic Party in seven different states, no longer call it the Jefferson Jackson annual fundraising dinner, which had been the case throughout the country for the Democratic Party's fundraising dinners for, you know, decades. And now they say they don't want to have anything to do with the names of Jefferson or Jackson, regardless of all the great things they did as president, did for the country, on the basis that they own slaves. So I think that as we look at our distant history, it is very important not to use a 2016 sensibility in evaluating what people did, both in connection with John Adams and the Sedition Act or with Thomas Jefferson and and Andrew Jackson as being slave owners. You've got to dig deep on the facts to understand what was going on and what caused them to make these decisions. These were not evil men. They were not demons, and they certainly should not be demonized today. Slavery should be demonized in 2016. It never should have happened, but it did. It was legal. It was permitted under the Constitution, and they were complying with the law at the time. Well, to push back on that a little, they helped write those laws that protected what helped make them very rich. Other people did make different choices or chose to farm smaller plots of land. Uh, I do think it's true that it would have been almost impossible to financially make an enormous plantation financially viable, but there's nothing that says so, you know, morally, then you are okay doing that. I just, I, I feel that other people made different choices even during that time. And Andrew Jackson you know, sure, there was the slavery, but I remember as a child, you know, 
hearing about the Trail of Tears and the rest of the genocide against uh, Native Americans. And that, too, is extremely troubling. So I, I would agree with you that you, you need to look at what's going on in history. I would challenge the idea that we could not have expected better from these men. I think that we can look at what they were faced with choice-wise, and they did not make the difficult decision. They made an easier decision for them. Well, I asked the questions to Peter Onuf, my Thomas Jefferson biographer, and H.W. Brands, my Jackson biographer, and I said, were there people in the South with large farms who made the decision to free their slaves or minimize their farms? And the answer was no. Uh, there might have been one or two who history has totally forgotten. And that was, again, cross-examining history, wanting to find out what were the decisions that Jefferson and, and Madison and, and Jackson made. Was this uncharacteristic, or were there at least some people with these large farms in the South who were making the decisions different from them? And the answer was no. Now, there were people in the North, notably John Adams, and many people in the North who, smaller farms, different perspective, were adverse to slavery beginning in the last part of the 1700s and, and certainly the first part of the 1800s. But those were different economic circumstances, smaller farms and so forth. So again, time and place and evaluating the decisions that were made are important to understanding and deciding what level of criticism to apply today to what somebody was doing 150 plus years ago. So Talmadge, before we come to the end of our time together, I would like to ask you, what would your advice to President-elect Trump be for the next four years of his administration about building consensus and joining the pantheon of the more significant U.S. presidents? My advice to him would be to follow the example of Thomas Jefferson and how he responded throughout his presidency, all eight years of his presidency, to crossing the aisle. It's all about building positive relationships with those on the other side of the aisle. Throughout his eighth years, uh, Jefferson would host a steady stream of dinner parties at the executive mansion where his only invited guests would be the leaders of the Federalist Party. And over the course of good food and good wine and good conversation and not a sporadic every once in a while thing, but an ongoing concerted effort to build relationships with those across the aisle, a dialogue was created that resulted in a civil discourse, a capacity to make compromises, and that's what allows a president to work with a Congress and be able to avoid gridlock and make progress. Lyndon Johnson certainly did the same thing in the way he cultivated Republicans in uh, ultimately causing the passage of all of our important civil rights legislation. In the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65, and the Fair Housing Bill of 68. So if President-elect Trump wants to have success in avoiding uh, this massive gridlock that we've had the last several years, then he needs to focus on building strong relationships with those in the other party so that at least 
there can be a civil discourse and the walls can start to come down and in time get to the point where people can actually work together, make compromises, get legislation passed, and he, he would not have the need to pass these executive orders that President Obama has set the presidential record for the number that he has issued because he cannot get uh, Congress to work. So that would be my main point of advice for President-elect Trump. And one last question. Can I ask, do you have another project in mind now that you've finished this piece of work? uh, Is there anything you have your eye on as a next venture for yourself? I've not decided what my next project's going to be. I'm 63 years old. I'm continuing doing these onstage interviews next Tuesday, six days after Election Day. And then next Wednesday, one week from today, I'm doing two onstage interviews here in Dallas with Bob Woodward of Washington Post fame to talk about this campaign, this election, the expectations regarding President-elect Trump and so forth. And I'm certainly hopeful that these interviews that I will continue to conduct may well provide the contents for another book. Uh, I'm doing more and more public speaking uh, in front of large crowds uh, in hopes of spreading the important facts in presidential history that I learned from pursuing this project that I think people need to be aware of before they cast aspersions on on past presidents, or maybe before sometimes they sing the praises of past presidents who, who are not deserving of such praises. So I like to feel like just as a lawyer needs to be in the business of being an agent of truth, finding the truth, speaking the truth, uh, I want to also continue to wear that hat in connection with my role as a historian. And Talmadge, if our listeners are interested in perhaps attending one of these talks or inviting you to speak, is there a website of any sort where they could reach you? Yes, TalmadgeBoston.com is my website. You can read the many editorials I've written on presidential history just this year and uh, has all my contact information. It also has the interview uh, you can see of Ken Burns on the Roosevelt, Henry Kissinger, so forth. Uh, The speech on the Ten Commandments of Presidential Leadership was covered by C-SPAN and televised a week ago for the first time. So you can Google Talmadge Boston C-SPAN Ten Commandments and pop it up. And it's when I spoke to the World Affairs Council of Denver, Uh, And I've been speaking everywhere from San Francisco to Portland, Maine, and everywhere in between. So I really am trying to spread this information about presidential history that I think is so important that I learned from these top historians and White House insiders in doing my new book. Well, Talmadge, thank you again for taking the time to join us. Talmadge Boston's book is Cross-Examining History, A Lawyer Gets Answers from the Experts About Our Presidents.